We turn to Psalm 135 this morning. We look at the concluding doxology of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Many, many psalms make that their theme. We choose this one, Psalm 135, in which we have those truths referenced and expressed. We hear the word of the Lord. Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries. Who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. Who sent tokens and wonders into the midst of thee, O Egypt upon Pharaoh and upon all his servants, who smote great nations and slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land for an heritage, an heritage unto Israel, his people. Thy name, O Lord, endureth forever, and thy memorial, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people, and he will repent himself concerning his servants. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Ye that fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, which dwelleth at Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We read that in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 52, question and answers 128 and 129. Question 128, how dost thou conclude thy prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all these we ask of thee, because thou, being our King and Almighty, art willing and able to give us all good. And all this we pray for, that thereby not we, but thy holy name may be glorified forever. What doth the word amen signify? Amen signifies, it shall truly and certainly be. For my prayer is more assuredly heard of God 
then I feel in my heart that I desire these things of him. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we stand at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. This doxology assumes the character or the reason for our prayer. That little four, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, introduces this doxology and really gives us the reason for which we pray. Why is it that we pray? We pray because God's is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. The Catechism explains, Thou being our King and Almighty, art willing and able to give us all good. And all this we pray for, that thereby not we, but thy holy name be glorified forever. But not only is this a fitting end to our prayer, as the Lord teaches it, it's also a fitting end to the treatment of the Heidelberg Catechism. As we come to a close of our treatment of the Heidelberg Catechism over the past months, we've seen the summary of our only comfort, that we know our misery, we know the wonder of our deliverance, and we're moved then to gratitude, moved to thankfulness to God for what great things God has done for us. And experiencing that wonder, God gives us to know that comfort, that only comfort that is ours in life and in death, that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we express that through, fittingly, also these words. Our comfort is found in this. God's is the kingdom and the power and the glory. If that were not the case, all would be in vain. There would be no comfort. There would be no peace. And then, the wonderful amen. Amen's a little word of encouragement. It's a word of confidence. To you children, it simply means it's finished. The service is done. But it means a lot more than that. And it means that God is giving us a confidence. This will be. Verily, verily, Jesus said repeatedly. So let it be, is our confession. Having prayed this petition from the heart, realizing our own weakness, our own inability, we leave the matter in the hands of our Heavenly Father. And we are assured that He who loves us will work all these things together for our good. This prayer expresses, I'm not in control. The devil's not in control. Fate, chance, is not ruling my life. My Heavenly Father is directing all things, and He's doing it in love. As we meditate on this doxology, beloved, this morning, we ask ourselves again whether spiritually we're able to pray this petition. We realize how weak how sinful often our prayers are. Am I seeking first the kingdom of God? Am I interested in His glory above all else? Or am I praying selfishly, just interested in my own situation, my own circumstance? This prayer's doxology confesses that prayer is ultimately for God. Our prayers are a pursuit and a seeking of God's glory. And that's humbling, because so often when we set ourselves to pray, we're just interested in ourselves, our situation, our circumstance. But God lifts us above that, and God makes us realize what's most important isn't 
my will, what I want, what I think is necessary. But what has my heavenly Father ordained for me that will serve his glory? To that, I not only submit, but by his grace, that I seek. We look at the doxology of the Lord's Prayer, the adoration, the motivation, and the assurance. What this reminds us again is that the deepest reason for prayer is not for us to get something, but it's for us to adore God, to magnify and to exalt the name of our great and glorious God. And we adore Him, we praise Him by experiencing in our own consciences an impression of that glory, that goodness, those virtues, and seeking then as we taste the goodness and the mercy of God, to make known to God our gratitude and thankfulness for what great things he's done for us. We see that glory all about us in creation. We see that glory in our own lives as we examine our lives and we see God's care providing all of our needs, physical, spiritual, emotional. God gives us that grace that's sufficient every day. God gives us the forgiveness of our sins. He strengthens us to fight against temptation. We stand in awe of the way in which God sovereignly, lovingly has directed and guided the whole of our life. And our desire is to adore him, to praise him. A doxology literally means an expression of praise, an expression of glory. Doxology means that, glory or praise. And so the reference here is to the royal expression of praise, the royal expression of thanksgiving that the child of God now, touched by the grace of God, desires to demonstrate as he comes into the presence of the creator of heaven and earth. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is the one to whom we owe our all. And now we desire to show that praise and that thankfulness. Repeatedly, the Bible expresses the use of doxologies to give God glory for all the wonders that he's performed. Think of Psalm 103, again and again throughout that psalm, talking about God's tender mercies, his grace, the fact that he's slow to anger, the fact that he forgives us. The psalm expresses God's mercy from everlasting to everlasting. And then finally, the conclusion of the psalm, verses 20 and following. Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength and do his commandments hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then the next psalm takes up that same theme. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great, clothed with honor and majesty. And we find that throughout the psalms, thanking God, praising God, blessing God. The psalm that we read, 135, Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, all ye servants of the Lord. And we praise him because he's good. We praise him because of his glorious works. We praise him for all the wonders he's performed. This doxology concludes in Psalm 135. Again, bless the Lord. And then all peoples, all expressions are to be directed. The house of Israel, the house of Aaron, the house of Levi, 
Out of Zion, he's to be praised. Out of Jerusalem, he's to be praised. The point being this. The praise knows no end. It knows no bounds. God is to be exalted and magnified by all, in all circumstances, in all situations, for the greatness of his work and wonders. And so, beloved, as we approach God in prayer, we do so as the angels. You remember how the angels do it? They cover their faces in awe. The angels coming into the presence of the holiness, the greatness, the majesty of God, covering their faces, not worthy to stand in the presence of this great and glorious God. If the angels, beloved, are covering their faces, how much more we, sinful individuals who know our own weakness and our sinfulness. We come into the presence of the Almighty God in humility, adoring, magnifying, exalting Him, and expressing this desire of our heart, that the whole of our prayer, the whole of our life, be directed to one thing, the glory of our God. Knowing what great wonders He's performed, regardless of what it is that we pray for, this is our ultimate desire, that God's name be exalted and that He receive all the glory. That He receive all the glory in the way in which he feeds me, in the way in which he provides for me, in the way in which he directs the whole course of my life, that his is the glory and that my attitude, my conduct might be not selfish, not about me, but about God's magnifying his honor and his name through all his works. That's our desire, that God be exalted. And through this doxology, then, we're expressing our thankfulness to God for the privilege of allowing us to come into his presence. And again, beloved, that's something we have to think about. Who are we to come into the presence of this great and glorious creator of heaven and earth, this holy and righteous one? We're conscious of the fact that he embraces us in love. He draws us to himself. He takes us into his presence. He gives us covenant fellowship with himself. And he gives us the privilege of knowing that friendship and that fellowship, not just temporarily, but as a communion and fellowship that is everlasting. That he is our covenant-keeping God. And he will be with us now and to all eternity. That he gives us that communion with him. And that he gives us that privilege of entering into the blessedness of his love, his grace, his mercy causes us to stand in awe. Most pagan religions and even many religions reserve only communion with the gods for like the elite of the elite. Most people aren't able to fellowship with the gods. You don't have access to the gods. It's only if you accomplish this, that, or the other thing, then you get into this certain category. And now you're dictated, or you're called a priest, or some kind of a prophet, and now you're able to enjoy that fellowship with the gods. Christianity teaches that the living God of heaven and earth fellowships with every one of his children. And that's the privilege that he gives to all of them, young and old, those who are guilty of the grossest of sins. He embraces, he sups with them, he takes them into communion with himself, and he allows us that entrance into 
his fellowship. And again, if we think about that, how amazing that is. You can't get in to a meeting with President Biden without a lot of effort or work. You can't go walk to the head of the United Nations and try to commune with him. But we have access continually, daily, into the presence of the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the holy and righteous one. And we approach him in love. We do so knowing that he will not turn us away, but that he has received us and that we can stand before him for Christ's sake. And we can unload our hearts with all our burdens, all our cares, all our concerns. We have one who is closer to us than a brother, a sister. One who will listen and one who assures us of his care and his provision for our need. We come into his presence face to face in Jesus Christ. And we stand before him then with joy and with thanksgiving. This great God has embraced me in love. He takes me into himself as the king of heaven and earth, as the one who's adopted me into his family so that now I can call him my father and I can walk in love toward him and I can believe and know in my heart that nothing can separate me from the wonder of his love. Again, that's the doxology, Romans 8, that God works in the hearts of his children. Not only that everything is working together for good, but then we get to the conclusion of Romans 8. Nothing, nothing can separate me from the wonder of his love. And though the devil tries so many things, though my own flesh battles against it, God is faithful and God will preserve and keep me. Beloved, when we stand in the presence of the Almighty God, when we know communion and fellowship with Him in Jesus Christ, we cannot but praise Him. We seek His glory. Now this reveals how selfish our prayers often are, doesn't it? So often we come before God with very little thought about God and His glory. We're just consumed with our own situation and consumed with the troubles that we experience. And in selfishness then, we just want things fixed. But when we pray in the consciousness of the Almighty God and His presence, then God works that gratitude. He works those doxologies in our heart. The doxologies that are found throughout Scripture. Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Psalm 150, found all throughout the Bible. Psalm 145, the Lord preserveth all them that love him. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We find the doxology in, for instance, Philippians 4. We find the doxology in Revelation Throughout the book of Revelation, the saints before the altar, the saints expressing their thanksgiving, their praise, their awe in the wonder that the almighty God of heaven and earth is the one to whom we owe our all. This is the adoration, this is the praise that God works in our hearts and which we express in prayer. It focuses on three things as the catechism points out. God's kingdom, God's power and God's glory. And we look briefly at those three different aspects. The child of God ascribes to his Father in heaven absolute sovereignty over all things. And that's our comfort. Knowing that the one who is ruling all things, 
who's governing everything that takes place in the kingdoms of the world, everything that takes place in my life, everything that takes place in the church is the sovereign king of heaven and earth whose power and authority are undisputed. That's the confession that God gives us. He has sole authority over everything and no one can deprive him of that glorious work. Again, it's not the devil. It's not my flesh that rules. It's the almighty God of heaven and earth. And so two things really are expressed here when we acknowledge God's kingdom and the glory of that kingdom. First, he's sovereign. He's the one whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom is the kingdom. All the kingdoms of the world are going to perish. They all will cease. But his is the kingdom. And he is the one who's sovereign. As Jesus Christ has been appointed at his right hand to rule over all things. But secondly, we acknowledge that as the God of heaven and earth, he actually is governing everything according to his sovereign will. He's actually moving the hearts of kings and princes. He's the one who's moving and causing all the things that take place in the animal world, in our own lives. He's the one directing everything according to his sovereign will, as God alone. He's not a God among many. He's not merely an idol. Again, the passage that we read here in Psalm 135 expresses the foolishness of that. I know that the God, our Lord, is great. He's not one who's an idol. The idols of the heathen, verses 15 and following, are silver and gold. They're the work of men's hands. They have mouths, they speak not. Eyes they have, they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouth. You pray to them, you can't expect an answer. Nothing's going to happen. But Jehovah, he is God alone. And as the one whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, he's the one that's ruling. And his is the kingdom. The kingdom that will be displayed in all of its glory as that everlasting kingdom of which I'm a citizen. This is bold again. In the world of sin and corruption, the devil says, mine is the kingdom. The devil says, I rule. And my kingdom is all powerful. And sometimes we look around and we're inclined to think that's true. It seems like the devil is definitely having the upper hand. It seems as though his power, his authority, is that which seems to be that which is sovereign. But Jehovah reminds us through this petition, thine is the kingdom. The kingdom is God's now and forevermore. And his kingdom is that kingdom by which he smote the firstborn of Egypt. Pharaoh thought that his was the kingdom. God demonstrated, no, mine is the kingdom. The other mighty nations and kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, he felt that he was the one who ruled. Og, king of Bashan, all the kings of the Canaanites, they were usurping a power and authority and they believed that they could control all things. God said, no, mine is the kingdom and I am the one who will execute that rule throughout all ages until finally the fullness of that kingdom is brought in the new heaven and the new earth. Thine is the kingdom and the power. That power is displayed here in verses 5 and 6 especially. For I know that the Lord is great, 
that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did, did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. God has no unrealized expectations or demands. Everything God wants to do, he does. God is never disappointed because he wants to do something, but he's incapable of doing it. As the one to whom all power is ascribed, all that he does will accomplish his purpose. And he will see to it that his will will be done. That same exclusive idea here is evident. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. And to note that that word forever at the conclusion is that which is emphasizing the truth with regard to each. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His power is an everlasting power. The word that is expressed there, that thine is the power, is the word from which we get our word dynamite. That God is the dynamo. He is the one who is capable of performing everything. And all that power is ascribed to him alone. There's no limit to his ability. Now that doesn't mean that he is merely a powerful one again. His is the power. Without him, there's no power in creation. Without him, there's no influence. Thine is the power. Another important thing that we note here with this prayer is that we're not ascribing that power to God in a future time. There are those who would say, well, we, we can live with this as long as we put it in the future tense. Thine will be the power. They say, right now God is not the one in control of all things. The devil still has a lot of influence, but eventually God is the one who will have all power over everything that takes place. No, God's power is not something that will come in the future. Thine is the power, now already. And God is the one that's causing then all to take place. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightning for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasures. God is the one whose hand and whose power are displayed all about us. Finally, thine is the glory. And again, verse 3, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. If all dominion, authority, and power are God's, it follows then he is the one that's worthy of all praise and glory. His is the glory. To ascribe glory to God is to say that God is good. He's infinitely good. All his works, all his ways serve his perfect plan and that his glory shines forth in all the works of his hands. This afternoon, Lord willing, we will see that glory displayed especially through the incarnation. What a marvelous expression of God's glory. We stand in awe that God sent his own son in order to display the greatness of his glory. That glory is the glory of the heavens, the glory of the creature, the glory of man, all of which has its source in God. Thine is the glory. And as the church beholds the greatness of God and his glory, she falls on her face. She covers her face with her hands and she acknowledges thine is 
the glory. There's no one else to whom we owe that glory. God is the one to whom all worship, all praise is to be directed. And the church of God then and the saints fall down in worship and adoration. That which motivates us in that worship and adoration is to show God all praise, all glory. As we noted, that little four, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, introduces that the motivation of our prayer is God alone. Why is it that I pray for daily bread? Why is it that I'm concerned about these other circumstances of my life? It all focuses on the glory of God. And we've already expressed that. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. But now as we close our prayer, the whole of that which we prayed before, even that which had to do with our needs, we acknowledge was rooted in the desire for the glory of God. And so this doxology explains why it is that we came to God in the first place. Why is it that we fell down on our knees in prayer? It wasn't because we were criticizing God's governing of the world. We didn't come to criticize God's governing of our lives and his will in our lives. We prayed for the circumstances and the situations of the world and our lives in connection with God's glory. Our desire wasn't that God fix everything and take everything away. Our concern, first of all, was God's glory. Thy will be done. If it be possible that God's glory would be pursued and sought in the way of healing and in the way of recovery and in the way of freedom from persecution and affliction, that's our desire. But our prayer was not carnal. Our prayer was not consumed with merely me and my situation. My prayer had to do with God and the hallowing of his name and the pursuit of his will. And the doxology shows that. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Worship means that I have been in the sanctuary of God. I have felt myself in his presence. And I've received a glimpse of the marvelous glory and the beauty of his holiness. And realizing my own unworthiness. Realizing who am I to have been taken into the presence of this great and glorious God. I fall on my knees and I adore, I worship, I praise Him. I can do no else. I pray with this doxology in my heart, knowing that all that I am, all that I can be is all of His grace. And so, beloved, this doxology actually explains our prayer. Because thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, I prayed as I did. Otherwise, why would I turn to God and acknowledge a need for earthly things if His was not the power to provide it? Why would I look to Him and pray for the forgiveness of my sins if His was not the ability to forgive my sins? So that this doxology makes a confession of faith. As we stand before the living God, we answer this question, why did I pray the way that I prayed? Can I say with boldness, I prayed according to God's will. I prayed according to God's glory and in the pursuit of His will. My prayer was not selfish. It was not simply for my own end. 
The focus of my prayer was not just for outward earthly advantage. My prayer was a prayer for God's kingdom, for His glory, and for His power to be displayed. And that prayer then begins and ends with God. And that's the beauty of the work of God in our lives. God causes us to realize that our lives are not about us. They're not about our situation. They're about Him. Our life is about God and His glory. And we show then in this petition that our prayer is an expression of our thankfulness, our adoration toward God. Now remember, we're treating the last part of the Heidelberg Catechism. And what is that? How is it that I would show my thankfulness to God for what great things God has done for me? And the answer is pray. This is how you show your gratitude for what great things God has done for you. God has taken you. He's delivered you from the power of sin and death. He's embraced you and united you to Jesus Christ so that you're not your own. You belong to Him. And the fruit of that wonder work is a thankful spirit that adores Him, that desires to give all glory to God for the wonders that He's performed on your behalf. That, beloved, is our motivation by God's grace. The work of His Spirit within us, giving us that desire in all things to seek Him, His glory, and His honor. And God gives us then a blessed assurance. Isn't it striking when the catechism identifies the meaning of the word amen. Amen signifies it shall truly and certainly be, for my prayer is more assuredly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of Him. How beautiful. I pray sometimes, and it doesn't seem like my prayer is getting past the ceiling. Sometimes I pray, and I wonder, will God really hear me? Is God really listening? Why would God listen to me? Jesus teaches us to conclude our prayer with amen. That is, make firm, steadfast, unmovable. Verily, it certainly and truly shall be. And that on the basis of Jesus Christ, who is the amen, the faithful the true witness. Jesus himself teaches us to pray this way. He's the one who gives us the Lord's Prayer. And he's the one that teaches us to conclude it this way. And we understand then the serious confession that we're making. We're declaring before the face of God that everything that we prayed for is true. The things that we prayed for are the object of our sincere, heartfelt desire. Even though we prayed in weakness, even though we did so in the context of our sinfulness, in our selfishness, we recognize and we express that this is the prayer that my Lord taught me to pray. It is by faith in Jesus Christ that I took that prayer upon my lips. And as I conclude that prayer then, I express the fact that it's in Him that prayer will be heard. Of myself, I have no confidence. Of myself, why would God hear me? Why would He take me into His fellowship? But it's not about me. It's because of my union with Jesus Christ. And for Christ's sake, that prayer is going to be heard. And that prayer is going to be answered. And so even though I struggle, I have difficulties, I have doubts, I have fears, 
I stand before the living God on the basis of Jesus Christ. And my life is being lived for Him and out of Him and through Him and in the pursuit of His will. We declare, beloved, before the face of God that we're sure that God will grant that which we ask of Him. That needs to be emphasized. Amen means that I am sure that God is faithful with regard to His promise and that the God who has promised to work these wonders in the hearts of His children will grant that in my life. I pray according to God's will and I know that He hears that prayer which is according to His will and that He will grant me all things in abundance. This isn't my prayer. This is His prayer. This is the Lord's prayer. The prayer that my Lord taught me to pray. And He will receive His own prayer as it's prayed by faith. This is the prayer in which He delights. And in light of that then, Amen. Conscious of my own weakness, conscious of my own imperfections, conscious of my own flesh, I cry out to God, so let it be. Work the wonder of thy grace in my life so that thy glory might be the fruit and so that my whole life might be lived in the pursuit of the kingdom, the power, and the glory that is in Jesus Christ alone. That's the wonder that God works in our hearts. I'm weak. I'm sinful. Who am I to think that God will hear my prayer? But Jesus teaches me, amen, so let it be. And to trust and believe that that prayer prayed on the basis of God's will is a prayer that will be heard. But beloved, we also stand at the conclusion of the Heidelberg Catechism. And with thanksgiving to God, with regard to all the truths that we've heard and learned, we can respond with a resounding amen. So let it be. We have heard the truth that gives us comfort, the only comfort in life and in death. That I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That I'm never alone. Through all the circumstances of life, He's with me. He's guiding me. He's directing me. And He's the one who holds me and preserves and keeps me. The one who gave His life for me. The one who continues to preserve and keep me until he's going to come back again in order to take me to be with him where he is, in order that I might experience the fullness of the blessed fellowship that now I know already in part. Standing before that precious truth, we're led to the cross. Repeatedly, we're led to the cross. We're led to confess our sin, to know the wonder of what he's done for us. And what does God work? God doesn't work doubt. God doesn't work fear. God works certainty. He works the certainty of our salvation. In the midst of our fear, in the midst of our doubts, He impresses upon us increasingly, this is what I've done for you in Jesus Christ. And He works the faith by which we lay hold on that. We embrace it. And we know it. And we grow in confidence with regard to it. Everything based on God. His everlasting love, His faithfulness in Jesus Christ, and the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. 
Beloved, there's only one response from us as we stand before that wonder. Amen. So let it be. Lord, work that wonder powerfully in my heart. Give me to know the enjoyment of that comfort now and to all eternity. And strengthen me that I might live to the glory and honor of thy name in all that I take up and in all that I do. With rejoicing, beloved, we thank him and we praise him and we acknowledge that this comfort is mine. And this comfort is the comfort by which he gives me peace. A peace that surpasses understanding. A peace by which I know patience, contentment, and the rich expression of his grace. My prayer more assuredly heard of God than I experience in my heart. My salvation more secure than I sometimes feel in my heart. Because that salvation is all in Christ. And everything is for Christ's sake, who is the one through whom my amen is sure and certain. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great things thou hast done for us in Jesus Christ. We are weak, we are sinful, we struggle and we are challenged day by day. But by faith may we lay hold upon that treasure that is ours in Jesus Christ. The wonder of his perfect love and work for us. The wonder of the blessings of salvation that are all ours in him. And the joy that is ours now and to all eternity. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.